Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm here with the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. Good morning. Hey, top of the morning to you, Steve. You know, it seems only fitting with the Winter Olympics almost behind us and the cold water Bassmasters Classic that just recently took place for us to talk about some early spring conditions. And who better to do that than Chad Morgendaler? Well, it's going to be great to talk to Chad. I know you enjoyed that interview. And, Aaron, we've, got, we've had a number of questions come in from listeners in the last month, and I thought today we would just take, take time to answer as many of those as we can. So let's just get right to it. Get it like that one, boy. Good job. Yeah, I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge with bass fishing, today. Oh, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Well, Aaron, it is good to be with you here today. You know, this is kind of that time of year. Uh, we hadn't been hanging out much together. We hadn't been uh, filming yet. Uh, what, what have you been up to? Well, Steve, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm not too far removed from the Eastern Sports and Outdoor Show in Pennsylvania where oh, yeah, uh, yeah. we had a lot of snow, a lot of people, and the opportunity to talk a lot of fishing. And I can sure tell, you know, it's kind of that time of year when everybody is getting ready to, uh, to hit the water because we set a new record for the number of DVDs we sold there. And uh, it was a, just truly a pleasure to, uh, to visit with everybody. I want to throw a shout-out to all the people that, that swung by the booth and uh, had the chance to meet and hook up with. Well, I know that was a good time, and uh, I talked to Mike, and he had a good time out there, and uh, uh, wished I could have made that. But, uh, well, tell me, uh, I trust that uh, the ladies of the Martin household are doing fine. They are doing well. We we uh, recovering from a little bit of sickness, but that kind of goes with uh, this time of year. And you mm-hmm. know, given the amount of snow days we've had, we've actually been able to uh, get out and enjoy a little bit of sledding in the Ozarks earlier in the year. Well, that's right. We got a sled for Christmas, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and hey, what what about yourself? I guess uh, you're probably recovering from Olympic Olympic hangover from all the late nights of watching the curling. <laughs> Well, I've been watching some of it, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been so cold outside and watch all that snow. It's, it's kind of, it makes me kind of cold, but I've been having fun and our folks been doing great and that's, uh, uh that's great. Uh, but, uh, tell you the truth, all the old Brigmans over here are getting a little cabin fever. Uh, you know, we had a few warm days come through here a couple of, couple of days ago, and Kathy, you know, she's always saying, well, let's go hiking, let's go hiking, you know, and I just nod my head thinking, no, let's go fishing, you know, so uh, I'm anxious, man, I'm anxious to get a rod and reel in my hand and get out. You and I need to, uh, we need to go fishing, my friend. Absolutely, you know, and unfortunately, it's uh, kind of T-minus seven days and counting until the new Legend boats are finished, and I, I've got to be honest with you, Steve, I'm going through withdrawals here from, from not having a boat, but, uh, you know, I'm sure it'll be worth waiting for. Seven days. Okay, I can live with that. I knew I knew we hadn't uh, hadn't gotten the boat yet, and uh, we'd uh, sold the other one. But uh, uh, I think we got some good weather coming up, and it's a great time to fish. It's getting that jerk that jerk bait time of year. It is that and grubs, and you know, uh, I, I just I can't tell you how. Uh, m- 
overjoyed I am to see this time of year coming because as you well know uh, the closer that spring gets it's really a time of year that regardless of what your liking is you can almost catch them uh, however however you prefer well don't get me started on those big smallmouth we tend to catch in March around here uh, let me uh, tell you what let's move on and get to these questions because we have a lot of them and, and and some really good ones and our first one is a real good question and uh, and it's from who we have from Jacob in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Jacob says, "Hi, I'm a really big fan of the show, and I have a question. I fish on a dark, stained river from a fishing bridge they installed last summer. On the fishing bridge, you can get right by the weed edge and also a small rock pile which yields smallmouth bass." I've tried to catch them a couple of times, but have not been able to get them to bite. Could you please tell me some lures to use to catch these bass? Thank you so much. Well, Jacob, uh, that's a great question. And two things here that come to mind and to kind of point out that uh, stuck out in his question is vegetation and smallmouth. You know, if the vegetation is submerged, my go-to baits for this situation, uh, no doubt, are going to be a lipless crankbait, you know, making that long cast off the fishing bridge, uh, just kind of fan casting in, in different angles, letting that bait sink to the top of the vegetation, and then really just applying kind of a yo-yo uh, presentation, raising the rod tip from really about the uh, you know the four o'clock up to the twelve o'clock position, and if it gets hung or attached to that vegetation, then you can kind of rip it loose and give your your rod a couple hard jerks. And when you do that and it rips loose, you know of course those rattles in that bait you know make just a an unbelievable vibration, and ultimately we're going to be able to trigger reaction strike. Secondly, you know I will opt for a jerk bait or a spinner bait, and then parallel. Uh, the edge of that vegetation, trying to entice the bass to come up or out and eat it. And then, you know, as the water warms, Steve, um, I would tell Jacob, don't forget to try a swimming toad or a hollow body frog. And concerning the rock pile, you know, the previously mentioned baits work well, but don't rule out the jig because as we all know, crawfish love the rocks and bass love crawfish. Well, that, that's great advice, and, and, you know, I've done a little fishing off of bridges myself. I would just throw in, while we're talking about bridges, and Jacob referred to this as a fishing bridge, and that sounds like he knows that that's a, a legal place to be fishing. But, uh, you know, people do fish on bridges that are used by automobiles, and it's very easy. I just want to throw out a caution, a little safety there. You know, it's really easy to kind of keep your eye on the water and not pay attention and, uh you know, uh, you can, you know, you don't want to step out in front of a car there. And then, of course, it's illegal to fish on a lot of bridges. So uh, uh, so just keep that in mind when we talk about uh, bridges in general. And on fishing bridges, you know, the one thing I will throw in is about how, you know, he's talked about the other structure, the rock piles and the uh, and, and the vegetation. But, man, don't forget those those, those bridge pilings themselves. You know, as that river flows, it's washing down all kinds of debris, uh, you know, limbs and branches and all kinds of things, uh, you know, especially when the water's up. And the bridge pilings catch those things. So uh, you, what you've got is on the upstream side, you tend to have a lot of debris that will hold fish and, and, and be structured in an ambush point for fish. And then behind the bridge piling, you've got a current break where fish will very often like to sit, conserve that energy, and dart out into the current to catch uh, to catch forage and bait fish. So, uh, man, you, you mentioned bridge to me. I start thinking about those pilings because uh, 
uh, and you know this, Aaron. You and I have caught it. We've had we've had some great fishing trips around bridge pilings. Absolutely, that's good stuff right there. I mean, how many times, uh, you know, have you been making cast around there, and all of a sudden you realize there's a, a wad of fish that's hanging out around that structure and that debris, like you speak of. That's so true, and uh, yeah, bridges, good place to fish, and boy, especially on rivers. So, uh, but anyway. Here, I tell you what, man, let's take a few minutes, take a break away here, pay a few bills, and go talk to uh, Chad Morgan Taylor, and then we'll be back after that with some more questions. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Electronics 101. Harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. back to the edge. Across the country, we are beginning to see hope that Mother Nature's grip is about to loosen, but our anticipation gives way to reality that cooler water temperatures are still looming. Here to help us manage our expectations is Jasper Engines and Transmissions Pro, Chad Morgan-Taylor. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. You know, Chad, I know for you personally, my opening statement really, well, it, it kind of has to hit home having already experienced, you know, an FLW tournament cancellation down at the Red River. I know you fished in the opening uh, Southern Open down on Okeechobee, and then also your recent attendance at the Classic in Birmingham. Yeah, you know, the cold weather has definitely, definitely been playing tricks on us. I mean, Aaron, I, I'm minus three fingers and two toes from frostbite at this point. <laughs> and have only fished good. I can't, I can't believe it, just like everybody else. You know, believe it or not, I even though I've been out a couple of times already this year, man, I'm getting cabin, cabin fever as bad as the next guy, <laughs> and that's sad. Well, it is, and, you know, it seems that, and maybe you have a differing opinion, but it seems that this year the frigid temperatures have really impacted the entire country a lot more as compared to years past. Oh, absolutely. You know, when we was in Shreveport right there when we left, um, Dallas had snow, for goodness sake. So, yeah, it, it has, uh, you know, and, and consequently, that, that uh, in turn affects the fish all the way from all of the strains, not just the Florida strain that's down there in, in South Texas and, and in South Florida area, but, uh, you know, even our strain here, and, and as far as that goes, even the spots in the smallmouth, when the water temperatures dip this low, and then, of course, you add precipitation onto it where it does, really funky things to the systems that you're on, whether it be, you know, the, the rising water temperatures on river or the rising water levels on rivers and then lakes, and then it dirties it up. And, you know, it just presents a tremendous amount of situations that uh, normally you don't have to combat, especially this time of year. Well, exactly. And, and that's really why, you know, I would like for you to be able to provide us some insight as to what is really taking place with bass behavior on a geographical basis here as we head into March. Well, you know, there's a lot of different things happening. Of course, in the, in the southern regions, it is starting to warm up a little bit. But, um, you know, here in the Midwest and, and up north, I mean, we're still socked in. And, and what everybody has to keep in mind is, you know, is the metabolism rate of the fish just flat slows down. They don't have to eat in these conditions. And trust me when I tell you the positioning of them is what's critical 
They're hard to find, but they're bunched up, and they do that because they stay around the groceries. And even the even the shad and stuff that you know haven't spawned yet, and are they are of large size. So when they consume one time throughout a day, or even sometimes a week's period. They're good to go, so they become really inactive, not only due to the cold water temperature, but because they don't have to eat. And literally, if they eat something live, they're just full. It's done. But they are sustaining weight and gaining weight at this time because they're developing eggs. And you know, But the water temperature, especially the core level, and that's what everybody has to watch, is the core level of the system that they're approaching. Well, to help it starts to gain, yeah, that's and, whenever you can you can start targeting some different things. And and you know, speaking of of targeting different things, can you help point us in the right direction as far as what areas of the lake or the river system you're going to investigate first? Well, yeah, and I can, and that will vary across the nation depending on where I'm at. You know, I've already fished Okeechobee. And I fished the Red River at Shreveport three days of practicing, though we didn't have an event there. And now I'm headed to Table Rock. And really, all of those, you know, cause you to uh, approach them a little bit differently. You can't so much at this time of the year rely on the past history of the lakes because it's never been this cold in some of the areas in the nation. Like Okeechobee hadn't been in that cold since 1924. Nobody's combated those situations. But... You know, you're going to have different different things you're going to look for, but the one common denominator out of all, absolutely all of the systems is the cleaner water. Now, that may not be clear, like in the Red River situation, that was not by any means clear, but it was cleaner. And down at Shreveport, it was the backwater areas because the river was rolling hard current. You know, the fish aren't going to sit out there and fight that at this time because they don't have the energy. They can't sustain it. So... uh you know, you want to target your, your backwater areas and your river systems, obviously, unless they're iced over. That creates a problem. Um, but uh, like on Okeechobee, when those fish had already made a major move in to, to think about spawning, and some of them had already spawned from a couple of weeks ago, but when that weather changes and that water temperature is at what it is, at status quo, or it's on the drop, those fish are going to migrate to that deeper water. Now, that kind of brings a different different aspect into it as far as resident fish and roaming fish and same to that nature, but uh, we can cover that a little bit later. So target your clear water areas, and, and it will depend on the system that you're on that will determine where those are located at. So obviously, if you have a lot of runoff, let's say, coming into a tributary, you know, probably the headwaters are going to be a little bit more dirty versus, you know, down closer towards the dam until that water, you know, works its way down the system. Right. But that brings up a great, a great point, Aaron. If you have runoff, normally it's going to, unless it's snow and ice runoff, if it's from rains this time of year, even if the water is a little bit dirty around that, it's going to be much warmer normally. So I do target those running areas, but you're right. The headwaters are going to be dirty and have fast current to them. So you probably want to avoid the headwaters to target the more protected drainage areas, especially if they've got deeper water located close by. 
Well, of course, Chad, you know, and as we talk and have our conversation here, we're, we're really, we're not trying to narrow it down so much as to where every bass is located. We're looking for those high percentage, those large concentrations, you know, of bass, kind of the 90-10 rule where, you know, 90% of the bass live in 10% of the water at any given time. And when you uh, kind of apply that that warmer water, the also the, the clarity of the water, does the presence of forage and cover come into play or is it strictly just dictated by, you know, the clarity as well as the temperature. Now, well, it all comes into play, and that's exactly exactly it. Um, your your cover and your forage, your forage especially. When that water temperature, everything is controlled by water temperature and moon phases. Um, and you know, when that water temperature before it gets up into the mid forties and it's on a constant rise toward the fifties, those fish normally tend on a pretty much any system. Um, you know, other than river systems that get high and roll hard, they tend to stay out on that main lake area, and they're going to. Ne- they don't necessarily have to be on anything at this time of the year, and that's why jerk baits and some of those other things are so effective. Um, what they do is they just stay close to the forage, and normally when the water temperature is that cold, it's not crawdads, it's shad, and plus the shad are bigger. They haven't had a chance across the nation to spawn, so there isn't small shad. So that's why when you're selecting your baits. You want to target on that little bit of a larger uh, a forage. But what, what typically they do this time of year is they'll just move and roam around on the main lake with those schools of shad. And, and when they get close to humps and, and main lake points and, and uh, indoor drop-offs, that they can get them cornered in and make their job of eating them a little bit easier, that's the part, that's where they're going to be caught at. That's where they're going to stay close to for the most part, you know. Um, but I don't find that they normally too much run into cover until that water temperature starts to rise, and that's when they're starting to think about moving into their spawning or toward their spawning areas, and then they move in and they use the cover as ambush points for that same forage. But, um, you know, it's, it's keeping an open mind and targeting really the main lake and looking for the shad at this time of the year that, that, that typically takes the cake. Well, and I think you brought up a, a, a good point earlier in your, your conversation concerning moon phases, because in reality, you know, uh, largemouth and smallmouth and spotted bass, they don't have a calendar down there like we do. You know, they're using those moon phases and that, uh, you know, that, that I, I guess, uh, photo period, if you will, the amount of daylight that shines during any given 24-hour period. That's kind of their calendar to point them in the right direction that, hey, spawn's coming. Absolutely. That coupled with water temperature controls everything in the world. You know, and then when your mother nature throws them a curveball, they're no different than humans. Humans, if it gets cold outside, they go dormant. We don't feel like being as active. You know, we don't, we aren't, uh, <laughs> incentivized to getting out there and mowing the yard or doing yard work when it's 30 outside. And they, they, on the other hand, aren't that interested in eating, but it's not to say that it's impossible. And, and there, even though the daylight time periods are increasing at this time of the year, until that water temperature and everything in their world starts to become more of a constant, you know, they kind of hold back a little bit and, and uh, don't, they aren't as active, but only in short periods throughout the day. So that's why you may hit a stretch that uh, you go down a bank and you really caught a good, and then two hours later you can't you can't possibly catch one. You can't buy a bite. Um, it's just their feeding times are so small during these periods of the year. So that's that's that is that's truly what controls all right now. Well, and we hear the term 
resident fish versus those that are kind of you know migrating through what does that mean to you and how can we really locate these areas that that kind of have the best of both worlds i guess well you know what it means to me is that um whenever i whenever i approach a system uh I look back uh, at what all the the topographical and geographical has to offer. And, you know, you're going to find those areas that have everything on a system that the fish need, whether it's table rock. A lot of the coves are really deep, have major Peter Creek systems within them, and they have the forage base uh, to to basically sustain life for those fish, and those are resident fish. They don't have a reason to live. They don't have to swim out to the main lake because they've got 50, 60, 80 foot of water right there, and they can do it more on a vertical or a very short spurt type thing. Um, but the other thing is the migrators. You know, those are the fish that, uh, you know, t- typically live out on the main lake and, and or in deep water. That brings up another point, too. You have shallow water resident fish that just typically never go deep say, deeper than about 8 or 10 foot, and then you have deep fish that only certain times of the year come shallow. Um, and then, of course, what controls that whole thing is the springtime and the fall um, when the fish are actually forced to change their everyday habits. But for two-thirds of the year, they remain constant, and that's why it's so easy to develop patterns and to stay with them and to stay with those types of fish. And, of course, the shallower fish are going to be... Uh, more affected by weather conditions than the deeper fish. Always, always is the case. So uh, it's just a matter of what the angler feels comfortable with. And, you know, finding finding those, both of those groups or schools of fish, as I like to call it, you know, is the best of both worlds so that you can alternate between the two and, and weather doesn't affect you quite as badly. Well, I think that's good stuff. And I'm certainly, I don't want to make this, you know, I don't want to overcomplicate this, but I certainly think it's worth bringing up. Does your approach change when you have the presence of spotted bass and, and smallmouth uh, versus, you know, just largemouth, whether it be Florida strain or even the northern strain? It, it, it does. It does. It does change a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, the the Florida. Um, I'm going to try to put this as quickly and as simple as possible. The Florida strain is just a breed of its own. They're funky. They're really affected by weather. Uh, they just do some weird things, uh, especially down in the Florida lakes. Now, my approach to catching uh, largemouth spots and and smallmouth at this time. This time of the year, right now, when the water temperatures is, is in that 35 to 45, they'll they'll hang out in typically the same areas. If you have your your uh, resident lake fish, like we had just talked about, you know, they will hang around the forage just as everything. And I really like to target areas uh, early in the year that have a mix because the smallmouth and the spotted bass they aren't affected quite as badly with the weather conditions, and they typically tend to bite a little easier. So. If, if I'm in areas, just as last year uh, on Table Rock, I I was in after uh, the second day, I was catching a mix of largemouth spots and smallmouth, all pretty much in the same areas. I may have to make a little bit of an adjustment and catch a spot or a, a smallmouth out just a little bit deeper. But then in the afternoon, as the water warms up, those largemouth become more active, and I can stay put without having to spend valuable time running around. So I do look for areas that typically hold all three species um, whenever it's uh, possible at all, because um, the spots will pull you out of the jam, and whenever one of those big brown bass that are crazy and will bite anything, most any time show up, and a lot of times they'll just show up, uh, it's game on. 
Well, and, you know, we find ourselves this time of year really, you know, leading all the, us all the way into summer to where we have obviously cold nights, but then the sun gets up and that water temperature is gradually starting to increase throughout the course of the day. And as the day progresses and the water begins to warm, do you find yourself having to make radical adjustments or are they more subtle and, uh, you know, just where you're casting and, and depth and that type of thing? It's more just subtle adjustments. Hopefully, I've already, by the time that my practice periods for these events have come to an end, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with the areas of, as far as populations and numbers. We all know that you're going to hit difficult time periods, and we've done talk about the uh, the shortened feeding periods that they have throughout this year. So I typically tend to stay with the area if I have a lot of confidence in it and just make subtle changes in the afternoon. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the mornings I've had to catch the fish cranking or jerking because they're out They're out a little bit deeper, maybe suspended. Um, they're chasing shad first thing in the morning, and then as the day goes on, you actually think that that bite would continue to get better as the water warms up. The fish actually move to cover more so, so you may have to pick up a jig and attack some heavier recover situation. And, and a lot of that will depend on whether the sun's shining or you get clouds and wind, you know, and... Um, you might you might be cranking in the morning and catching them on a spinnerbait in the afternoon uh, if it stays cloudy and the wind keeps up on you, whereas if it slicks off and the sun comes out, those fish will pull into those darker objects to, you know, absorb that sunlight and that heat, whatever's available. It's just like uh, a human, you know, if you was froze to death, if you, if you could find a pilot light somewhere, you'd go huddle around it. So sure. that's kind of what they do, and, and, it, and it just takes a subtle change. You know, you may be cranking that same bank, and jerking that same bank all the way down it, but then and never even come close to. And I do that all the time, not even throwing the way down, uh, but until the conditions get right and I feel like it, and then I keep them honest. You know, those fish just move around a little bit, and hopefully I can hit one in the head and convince him that I, my bait is the best thing in the world. Well, and it sounds to me like uh, you know you're not just kind of picking one bait category, uh, whereas you're you're actually going to mix it up you know, throughout the course of the day. Is that true? Are you keeping kind of an arsenal of baits laying on your front deck? Dude, I carry 25 rods for a reason. And I got <laughs> on them. You know, everybody asks, well, how many rods do you have? As many as it takes. And, you know, that that's, uh, you know, it may be to have, uh, I may have six or eight different crankbaits for different depths, colors, vibrations, uh, and I'll alternate them throughout that until I hit on something that I feel like is the key deal, especially in practice. Um, jigs that are a little bit more simple for me. I, I've got my favorite stuff. You know, it's a slow bait presentation thing. And unless I'm dealing with a fall rate, I, I pretty much stick with the atypical, you know, color patterns, black, blue, your browns, uh, brown and oranges, green pumpkins, things of that nature. So, you know, but I'll have three or four different sizes and styles tied on them uh, with different trailers on them and maybe even coated with different scents throughout the day so that I can just see if one is actually better than the other gets more bites because that does, that does tend to happen. You know, you just have stumbled into a, a situation where you've matched the forage base better with one particular jig. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a... Uh, there's a reason we carry so many rods, and, and even that, you know, one bait to the next tends to catch fish sometimes better than the other, even if they're identical. So that's kind of a, a deal as well. Well, and I'm sure, you know, really it comes down to also uh, it has to do with the cadence maybe that you're working a jerkbait, the, the speed in which you're reeling, you know, your spinnerbait, or the pace in which you're working the jig. It is. You're exactly right. But you can bet 
that if that water temperature is under 50, you're only dealing with one deal, and that's slow. It's just a matter of are you going slow enough? And as far as cadence-wise goes, and that 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 is the deal. Um, but you have to change up, you know, different line size, different rod. Um, uh, actions just so that you don't pull the bait as far whenever you jerk it, or you know you've got the light enough fluorocarbon line on the on the jig that you can still handle heavier cover situations, but can, can get those bites because those fish are a little spooky. I mean, it's like they're very aware they've spent all winter being not pressured and not having to deal with humans beating on top of their head. So when they start to eat and they start things start to come around, they are very aware of their environment, very spooky. And that's one big, big key is is to remember that. So, you know, don't be your own worst enemy. Mother Nature is doing that good enough for all of us right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, one of the, I think, uh, a very popular question that we often get asked is concerning the pace of, of your your fishing, I guess, as you progress throughout the day. Can you describe your pace of attacking the areas that you highlighted? You know, is it generally fast or is it going to be more slow and methodical? Well, you know, I like to cover as much water as possible because I like to look at as many different situations that could come up as possible throughout a day's time. To do that, I can't fish uh, a 50-yard stretch of bank, and it takes me four hours to do so. With that, with that said, what I like to do is if I pull into an area, say I don't know anything about that particular body of water, and I, I take a look at it on the map, and I take a look at it with my GPS unit, I usually typically ride the lake and find out what I'm looking for at that particular time of the year. And then I will pull in and just test a few of these areas to see if I can get a bite. While I'm testing very, very small areas at that, you know, it may be the end of a bluff. It may be a really small uh, indenture at the end of a bluff if I'm targeting main lake stuff or the end of a long point. You know, um, and if I'm in creeks, you know, I may just in the afternoon flip five or six of the best-looking stuff uh, in there, you know. And I will I will target that really key piece of, of structure and or spot. I'll fish that very slow and methodical, but I don't spend much time on it. If I do get a bite, I'm fine with that. That is probably going to be one of my key deals. And I, I keep an open mind. Now, when I start my event or start fishing on that particular body of water, um I will keep all of that in mind and say, you know, I fished here for 20 minutes and I had two bites. Um, so I'm going to give that area a little bit more attention and go a little bit slower. But I try to look at everything to get it all dialed in in the time frame that I've got to be there. And it doesn't matter whether you're pleasure fishing or competition fishing, you should approach it in the same manner. People are bad about relying strictly on where they caught fish yesterday or last year at that time, and you've probably missed something phenomenal on another part of the lake. It's just because you haven't taken the time to ride the lake to see what all's there and how things have changed or what is available at the current and present time. Well, so that's all good stuff, Chad. And I have a final question before we get out of here that actually comes from a listener, which is Andy in Canton, South Dakota. And what Andy wants to know is what is the best knot to use for tying a fluorocarbon leader to braided line? And I certainly know this is something you have a lot of experience with. It is. It's a uni-knot or double fisherman's knot. That's what they call it. Uh, and five twists on that knot is the is the best. Making sure that you wet both lines really good before you pull them together and trim them real short so that you don't have that uh, that bulk on that knot. But uh, 
that's they've got a couple of different names for it that uh, the double fishermen's or the the uh, uni knots. So it's uh, it's the best one. It's the strongest by far. Um, we've tested and tested and tested those things uh, over the years. So that that is it. Well, thanks uh, so much, Chad. We have successfully reached our limit today, and. Uh, you know, just want to wish you the best of luck in your upcoming season, and it's always a pleasure to have you here on The Edge. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you having me, and look forward to the next time. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Hi, I'm James Nigemeyer. You've got The Edge. Well, Aaron, I was really interested to hear Chad talk about using braid and fluorocarbon together because uh, you're the first one I saw do that, and I know you and you do that all the time. And I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about uh, when you like to do that. Well, uh, you know, I do like to do that. I, I've got to be honest with you; it's certainly not something that I came up with. I, I stole it from uh, one of the anglers that we had on Bass Edge, and that was Sean Hernke. And I thought it was the greatest thing <laughs> when he showed that to me. I, I all of a sudden, you know, I could just spread, baby. Hey, Exactly. I could just see all these different applications that I could use it for. But, you know, I use the braid fluorocarbon combo almost exclusively on all my spinning reel applications. You know, the reason being there is it, it prevents line twists, those nasty line twists that we get. It lasts forever, so it saves you not only a lot of aggravation, but also a lot of money. And when you when you talk about kind of the, the I guess, properties of braided line, you know, the sensitivity and the lack of stretch just really make it ideal for deep water applications like drop shotting or throwing a grub or a shaky head. Now, when it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just saying, in this time of year is when that's going on. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I've, that's why when you're fishing those deep fish, you know, I want to be able to feel anything that remotely comes close. And, and even if fish could breathe, I want to be able to feel that. But when it comes to, you know, to bait casters, um, I'll use that a lot when targeting schooling fish. And, you know, there's just that thrashing that's taking place on top of the surface. And, and I really want to get that hook up but I also I want to get the bass out of that school very quickly so that it doesn't you know kind of shut off the or turn off the rest of the school as far as what's going on and you know I think there is some science there that on the um what they emit on the hormones um but anyway I want to get that out of there as, as quickly as possible and the lack of stretch with braided line really helps me accomplish this and then finally you know there are those applications when I'm I'm flipping in sparse vegetation I'll add a fluorocarbon trailer a couple feet long to reduce any chances of the bass seeing that braided line, mm-hmm. you know, when fishing that sparse vegetation. Well, that's 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 great advice. I know you, you, you like to do that, and we've caught a lot of fish that way. But I tell you what, let's move on to another question. We've got another one here. It's about equipment. This is from David in, in Pearl, Mississippi, and I'm guessing he fishes that old beautiful Pearl River down there. But uh, David asks... Living in Mississippi, 
we have very unusual weather. One hot day and cold the next. And I was wondering if temperature had any effect on fishing gear if it's left in the boat. Although it's covered, I just re-spooled all my reels with new line last summer, but leave my rod and reels in the boat through the winter. Does it mean that I have need to re-spool this year? And what about plastic lures left in the freezing temperature? Does it hurt them? And we had a question that was almost the same from Paul in Lynchville, New Hampshire. Good to hear from our folks in New England. And he has essentially the same question, and he wants to know how long should I leave line on the reel and how are they affected by heat, cold, and the sun? Well, certainly two good questions, and uh, let's start with David's first. David, I do feel that climate and exposure to UV rays have a tremendous impact on your tackle um, that you're using throughout the course of the day. I suggest, one of the things that I do want to point out that wasn't mentioned, I do suggest cleaning your reels at least once a year. You know, the lubricants uh, that are used inside of the reels, the, the oils, and also the grease become very stiff, and when they get cold, um, you know, that just makes it all the more worse. And it, it also it, it helps them last longer, which is ultimately going to, uh, you know, prevent breakdowns on the water, but also kind of preserve your investment. As for the line, you know, if your budget allows, I suggest changing it as often as what you can. It will allow you to make not only better cast, plus it decreases your chances for line failure since that's kind of an important component, you know, between you and the fish. And this is where the braided line with the fluorocarbon leader, you know, that I just talked about may save you some time as well as money, um, kind of as I described earlier. Concerning the plastics, you know, being exposed to freezing temperatures, I don't, um, you know, have any scientific evidence, but I can tell you that I personally do not leave my baits in this type of climate for extended periods of time. I just, I don't want to take the chance that it will impact, you know, the action or the color of the bait in any way. And then as far as for Paul's question, which ties right in there, um, you know, one thing that I always do that will help to extend uh, the life of the line, but also the ease of casting, is to apply a line conditioner. You know, simply give the spool, you know, a few squirts, let it soak in prior to hitting the water, and uh, it's it's going to help you on multiple fronts there. Yeah, well, that's something that's come along in later years that, uh, you know, frankly, I have not... Uh, I've not used and I need to, but, uh, you know, Aaron, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I know, you know I'm one of those guys whose budget doesn't permit me <laughs> to re-spool my reels uh, every month or so, and, uh, and, and you know, one of the things that I've always done is tried to take a look at my line, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, do you think that's reasonable? I mean, do you think that, that you can, uh, that there are signs that, that, that you can look at about your line and say, man, this is, this stuff is, this needs to be replaced. I absolutely do. You know, not only obviously for the first, say, 20 or 30 feet, you know, the stuff that's getting exposed, obviously, the most when you're casting and that type of thing, um, you can not only run your fingers up and down it. Now, that's obviously not uh, of, it's not like putting it under a microscope or anything, but certainly you want to pay attention there, not only on the field, but I also, believe it or not, Steve, I actually look at it and physically, you know, after I make a cast, look at it laying on the water because, let's take, for instance, you know, floor 
hydrocarbon. It has a coating on it, okay? And when you first open it and first put it on your, your spool, it's all nice and shiny, you know, and it uh, doesn't have a lot of memory, Not uh, it kind of lays nice and nice and limp. Um, but as you use that, the, the line becomes very dull and almost like a milky white. And that means that that coating is actually starting to kind of wear off, um, you know, just from use. So I do feel that you can look at it, and when those signs start showing up, plus when it's starting to become difficult to make good cast, and uh, maybe I have, you know, some looping that's taking place, that type mm-hmm. of stuff, those are the signs that I look for when it's time to change. Well, and I think we've got time for one more question, and here's one that we get from time to time as we're out uh, moving about the country, and, and, and I know you've got uh, some, some good insight on this. It's from Raymond in Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, and it, Raymond asked, have any of you guys started out by fishing in the back of the boat before you owned the boat? If so, please give me some advice for someone wanting to fish local club tournaments in this capacity, and he thanks us. Raymond, the answer to your question is yes. I, I've actually had experience, and, and quite honestly, that's really how I started off fishing. Uh, first thing I want to point out is that you have to remember you've got to keep kind of your psychology or your mental game in check as you are not competing you know, against the angler in the front. Secondly, um, have a conversation prior to the morning of takeoff, perhaps the evening before where it gives you enough time. Um, to prepare your tackle, but you know, just have that conversation as to what they think that you're going to be targeting throughout the day, and th- this will really help not only put your your mind at ease, but it is also going to give you enough time to be prepared uh, once you hit the water that you've got the baits on and kind of a starting point. Uh, pr- you know, like I said, prepare your tackle accordingly without packing too much. You know, a good rule of thumb that I always like to use or, or that I applied for myself is that four to five rod rule. You know, I would carry four to five rods, uh, maybe three bait casters, two spinning rods, depending on what the applications, um, you know, warrant. But also then I limit my actual tackle to one portable tackle bag that I can throw over my shoulder, move around so that it's not in the way. And, um, you know, if you do run out or you don't have a particular bait uh, that you need, chances are, you know, most people, they're going to likely share or they're going to uh, offer you one and uh, provide it because it's, it's a lot easier to do that than to try and obviously pack every ounce of tackle that you own. And finally, you know, make sure that as you're progressing down through these spots in these areas or down the bank um, that you are targeting the areas and the styles of bait that the other angler is not because I just firmly believe that until um, you guys get out there and really get on something it it could be that you know maybe there is only one bait that is working but I I'm just a firm believer that there is no way that the angler in the front of the boat can cover all areas of the water column well Ramey you certainly got the right idea because I tell you what a lot of these guys who are successful like Aaron and a lot of the pros, you know, they started in the back of the boat. And I think the only thing I would really add to uh, what Aaron said there was uh, just kind of keep in mind why you're in the back of the boat. Uh, don't let yourself get too too competitive to the point where you're not working with uh, the angler in the front of boat and learning from him. That's that's really why you're there. So and don't be intimidated if you fish with uh, you know the best guy in the, in the club. I mean, let's face it, fishermen are generally good guys, and uh, so uh, you know pick their brain and 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 just remember that. Uh, 
Uh, you're in a learning situation. Don't be intimidated. You know, Aaron said, you know, four or five rod rule. But if you've got one rod and reel, don't be intimidated. Take it. Go fishing. Take what you've got. And uh, most of all, and I stress this all the time uh, about tournament fishing or any kind of fishing, it's about fun, man. You enjoy yourself out there. Don't don't lose sight of the fact through the learning that this is this is this is supposed to be a lot of fun. Well, good stuff and great advice there, Steve. Well, I tell you what, Aaron, before we get away today, I mean, I think we, you know, we're coming into March. And, uh, you know, I just want to talk a little bit with you about, uh, you know, what we're looking at uh, fishing-wise across the country. I mean, I think March is a, it's really, truly one of the, the great fishing months. Uh, what, uh, what kind of things are you looking for in the next month before we visit with the people again? Well, first off, uh, you're going to have to remind me that it's actually March because I can tell you, it, it, you know, feeling <laughs> the, the, the feeling of the temperature outside. And then also, you know, I say that sarcastically, Steve, but I'm beginning to think that uh, we're going to be a little behind this year because I'm looking at some logbooks and, and just, you know, just kind of going over my notes from years past. And I can tell you that just certainly here on Table Rock, um, the, the water temperature, things are going to be behind. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think a good case of that was just at the recent Bassmasters Classic down on Lay Lake. But, you know, depending on where you're at geographically, certainly we know this time of year that uh, the spawn down south has already taken place, uh, you know, in the southern tips of Florida and Texas and those areas, and then it's going to be kind of working its way up. The thing I go back to, though, is remember what we spend so much time talking about is that photo period. The bass are on the move, and they know that the spawn is coming. Whether or not that happens, you know, a week or two based upon last year is really irrelevant because that is what is on their mind. So things that I'm looking to do, you know, here in the Midwest, let's say, uh, if you're down south, it's going to be a post-spawn situation. Uh, I'm going to be making sure that, you know, presenting a slow presentation, uh, recovering fish. Obviously, they're going to be starting to feel a little bit better before they go on that feeding binge up here you know in the midwest though that hasn't taken place so the fish are still staging kind of in the pre-spawn i'm going to be looking at those areas where they're staging those highways where they're moving to and towards uh, the spawning flats uh, normally that's going to be adjacent to deep water i'm still you know like i said throwing that jerk bait that grub picking up the jig because as we know um, you know the the shad have yet to spawn so the the shad are going to be bigger so hence I want to relate to kind of the the hatch matching the hatch on those bigger ones by throwing that jerk bait but also remember as that water temperature warms the the crawdads and crawfish are starting to come out from under the rocks get a little bit more active and so that comes into play along with that wiggle wart well that's so true I mean March strikes me as one of those months that calls for the most flexibility because uh like you said in, in any given place it's it's a time of year it's a transition time of year from from winter to spring and uh, we're still real cold here uh in, in in the Ozarks but uh you know up up in Minnesota there's still ice fishing and down in Texas where I where I grew up we're looking for the first the full moon in March as that first big blast of spawners coming in and those fish right there they're in they're in a pre-spawn situation and the one thing about the pre-spawn is the fish are eating they are storing uh, energy to to get to get them through the spawn. So force yourself in at, out there into all kind of weather to fish that uh, to fish during this pre-spawn because 
the fish are biting. Now, well, I know growing up in Texas, of course, we're always looking for those March fish. You know, they're 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 storing that energy, and we always found them where we could find the water warming uh, the earliest. Uh, you know. It, in the northern hemisphere, we typically, because of the sun angle, will find that the northern parts of the lake will warm the fastest, shallow water warms faster, and stained water warms faster. So, you know, look for that water, you know, move around and look for that water that warms the fastest, and that's where you'll find bait, bait fish concentrating, and that's where you'll find those big pre-spawners gorging on that forage, storing the energy for the spawn. Well, all good stuff there. And, and, you know, Steve, it's hard to believe it, but we have actually ran out of time and come to the end of the show. And as always, you know, it was a pleasure talking bass with you today and really all of our friends here on the edge. And I just want to remind all of our listeners to send in your questions for next month's podcast and to also check out the full lineup of merchandise on Bass Edge eStore. Until next month, I am Aaron Martin. And for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, so long, everybody. Bass Edge has been brought to you in part by MegaWare Keelguard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Super Start Batteries, Mother's Polishes, Waxes and Cleaners, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com.